That's the T-bones, no matter what shape your stomach is in. And this is the Christmas podcast for the year 2013, episode 160, entitled BLP Oil Spill. The reference, y'all hopefully know, is to By Love Possessed, the 1957 classic novel by James Gould Cousins, which I am going to say once again today is my personal favorite of all novels. Now, I've been through thick and thin with William Inge and his remarkable concluding novels. And I would also put Alice in Gaza by Aldous Huxley at the very top. And then I think we would um, run right through so many other great achievements, including Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H.G. Wells and um, The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington, and for me most saliently, One More River or Over the River by John Galsworthy, successive to Flowering Wilderness by John Galsworthy, and um, not to mention any number of others that one can name and you have in your heart. But I want to say why I think you would do very well, why we all do well, and I speak most to myself, to attempt to give as Christmas presents a copy of James Gould Cousins' By Love Possessed, because it has a kind of spill effect. That's why I've called this the BLP spill it spills oil and gets a kind of movement going in the rudimentary parts that in my own uh, personal life is unique. And that's why I call it a Christmas novel. Obviously, I hope you would put it uh, as a stocking stuffer, but the main present to those you love would be, um, does it go without saying, the new uh, masterpiece, PC's Panopticon, an off-the-wall guide to world religion. But... Let's just imagine you've already taken care of that, and you need a stocking stuffer, which you get on, uh, it's not in print in a, um, the original edition, it's in a computer edition, but you can get it on eBay for about 99 cents in paperback, um, because uh, no one, there's no market for it today. But By Love Possessed is the stocking stuffer of the century, and I want to talk a little bit about it, especially in light of, actually, the theme of Pisces Panopticon, which is the consciousness and the uh, deeply um, uh, um, pervading hope that we are given by virtue of a non-denial of death within life. And I'm going to talk just a little bit about one passage in My Love Possessed, then edit, the only edit I would put in that entire book I'm going to present, and then say why ultimately this book um, actually has an almost favorable comparison with the highest written work of all time, which is certain aspects of the New Testament. Now, that's um, a statement I make. Towards the beginning of By Love Possessed, Arthur Winner, the hero, who's a lawyer and kind of the resident 
man of reason isn't quite the right word in his case because his father was the man of reason, but Arthur Winner is kind of the go-to person in his town of Brockton, Pennsylvania. He is the absolute wisest, most sensible, most prudent, most rational, indeed also compassionate uh, man uh, in the community. And he is the person to whom everyone in the community, rich, poor, single, uh, uh, married, gay, straight, every conceivable type of person, person of color, white person. Everybody attends to Arthur Winner because his opinions are so sagacious. And the story is, in fact, the complete dismantling of Arthur Winner's own self-understanding. And yet uh, he comes at it from the highest level of um, integrity. And in a particular passage here, Helen Detweiler, a young woman of about 20 or so, is maybe 22, 23, is speaking uh, with plaintive uh, uh, need to her father figure, who is Arthur Winter. The situation is that Helen Detweiler is a person by love possessed in that she, her entire life is focused on uh, helping her shiftless, indolent, um, no good younger brother, who's four years younger than she, um, to sort of fly right, and her no good, indolent, self-absorbed, mean, shiftless brother is just not going to do it. And so she's at her wit's end trying to explain herself to Mr. Winner, whom she believes can influence her brother, because Mr. Winner is older and wiser, needless to say, and maybe his good words will influence her brother, Ralph, to go to college. And we have here a picture of Helen's um, fragility as she talks about this. She Both her parents were killed when she was a teenage girl. And um, her body overwhelms her uh, rational sense. Her, her deep vulnerability comes out in certain symptoms that are described. And then the author, James Gould Cousins, gets into her heart, into her mind, and in a way into her soul, in a way that is as penetrating as anything that I can imagine. But this kind of passage occurs almost um, every three pages uh, in By Love Possessed, which is about 530 pages in length. Arthur Winter said it's going to be a little bit of a long passage but um, it's worth it Arthur Winter said my dear Helen a person who has done all you have done for your brother who has tried as hard as you've tried has nothing to blame herself for every plan is a gamble wise is what a plan turns out to have been if everything happens to go right you've done your best you've been very brave and very faithful and that's all anyone can do or be Yes, I have tried hard, Helen said. She could be seen to tremble in exquisite balance on the edge of tears. She held her lips together, and the muscles of her throat moved in stiff, successive little swallows. Opening her mouth, she said, The others, I'm not, Mr. Winner. I'm not brave. Everything frightens me. Ralph, doing things for him, made me happier than anything else. I could not have done them. By making herself speak, by obliging those throat muscles to obey her will, Helen resumed her measure of composure. Yet this, Arthur Winner must realize, trembled in a balance too. Close to Helen's consciousness, nearly impinging on it, was, everything frightened her, the forbidden horror, the dreadful, eyeless face of our existence. In a desperation how different from the placid firmness with which Arthur Winner's mother successfully rejected knowledges she did not care to have, Helen pushed back the horror, refused to look. On the world she never made, she imposed with all her strength a pattern of the world she wanted, 
a place of peace, of order, of security, a good and honest world, the abode of gentle people who, kind-minded, fair-minded, clean-minded, remarked the perfect man and beheld the upright, and who, once believed into existence, could alleviate, their unspotted life was serene, their end was peace, could alleviate Helen's recurrent anguish of trying not to know, yet always knowing that in the midst of life we are in death. Well, that passage um, succeeds in every possible way. Uh, you have Arthur Winner, who is kind of, in a way, uh, trying to placate or at least help this young woman of whom he is a partial trustee, and with very good faith, to sort of talk her into um, composure by means of kind of maxims, which will turn out later to have been... Um, utterly bankrupt in light of what actually happens to Arthur Winter himself. We see that Helen, despite all her protestations of trying, has muscles on her throat that are moving in stick, stiff successive little swallows. She's overcome, in fact, by symptoms. Her body is not lying to her, is forcing her uh, to, um, uh, to deal uh, with it. And then um, Arthur Winter begins to realize that close to consciousness, there's a deep fright in her, and the fright is very, very deep, and it is uh, so uh, powerful, this uh, great uh, noisome gap between what ought to be in this world, what Helen would wish to have in this world, the world that she would perceive it and hope it and imagine it and even make it be, force it to be, is in fact a um, an overwhelming recurrent anguish of trying not to know, yet always knowing that in the midst of life we are in death. We have heard earlier the story of her parents. Now, that story of Helen Detwiler's denial of death, which is so deep, notice how it's couched in biblical language. In the midst of life, we are in death. Um, the, observe the righteous man. Um, there are probably six or seven King James Bible references in those two paragraphs. And Cousins, who is not himself a believer, he was an agnostic, bordering on atheism, Episcopalian. He was a devout, you might say, in an odd kind of a sense, Episcopalian, but actually personally, and he said this very often, an agnostic bordering on atheism, yet he had been so completely surrounded by the King James Bible and especially by the Book of Common Prayer as a child and then as a student at Kent School and uh, in all his life through his mother and his father and his the Episcopal Church and a wonderful prep school education he had at Kent that um, he is bound to phrase things in terms of the prayer book. So it's a wonderful resource he has, which not many, not, not enough people are able to have today, which is a loss, but it was not a loss for him. And therefore, it goes to a depth of power and a feeling and richness and observation that is also tied to his acute psychological insight and emotional understanding of what is really going on in the archaeology of a person like Helen Detwiler, who is probably the most pathetic person in the true and honest and beloved sense of the word pathetic and pathos in the whole novel. She's played by Susan Conner in the movie, who actually conveys in her manner something very uh, conscious, very real, something very informed of her character, Helen Detwiler's actual persona. And when Cousins saw the movie, he stayed at the Harvard Club in New York once to see it for the first time. And later he saw it again with his wife, uh, Susan. Um, Susan? I think I have that wrong. In any event, um, he stayed with his remarkable wife, Bernice, um, 
And in their home in Williamstown, they go to see it in the journals. And he loved it both times. He thought that the script of the movie, for all its uh, seemingly Peyton Place uh, hysteria, actually was very perceptive. He loved the movie, or at least loved the fact that the movie made many, many uh, doffings of the hat to um, tips of the hat to the actual book that Cousins had written. And (coughs) so you have... In uh, this uh, passage, the BLP oil spill, because the uh, depth of understanding, the introspection carried to the deepest level, couched often in prayer book terms specifically, and as you remember in this book, the Episcopal Church is treated at quite a great deal of detail and an enormous amount of insight about the Episcopal Church as it was and as it was coming to be, because even in the 50s, he could see through the character of wit. Uh, Whit Trowbridge, the rector of the parish, Christ Church Brockton, he could see shades of things to come. So it's not as if it's a time capsule, uh, it's treatment of the church. But by the by, this uh, passage has a spill, the by love possessed spill, because it, it captures her possession by a kind of love that is actually a fanaticism. She develops a fanaticism about her brother. That's the only right word, just as I've met some uh, Christian missionaries along the way, met many of whom I've, many missionaries I've met who are wonderful and devoted and consecrated and truly self-sacrificing individuals and families, but I've also met some fanatics. I would say the only authentic religious fanatics in the true sort of sort of Thackeray sense of that word, or even in the more modern acerbic and often uninformed secular understanding of such people, I've met a few. And uh, I've known a few fanatics who are absolute fanatics in their myopia involving overseas Christian missions. And as I say, I've known many who are not. But uh, in this case, uh, Helen has developed a fanaticism about her brother in the same way that uh, Marjorie Penrose in the novel develops a fanaticism about Catholicism and um, in the same way that... uh, she has a kind of fanaticism about Arthur Winner, and in the same way that all the various individuals in this book, without exception, with the exception of Arthur Winner, have some form of kind of fanaticism of a possession by, or a being possessed by, or a possession towards a desire to possess the object of their love. And whoever it is or whatever it is, from career to children to a woman to a man to a child to a sibling to a parent, it is fanatical and results in disaster. And that includes even the sagacious wise man, Arthur Winter. So I suggest that you read this book. And I suggest that you give it to everyone you know, provided Natch, that Pisces Panopticon, has already been dealt with. And that might include a book called Essays, um, Comfortable Words, that is being uh, uh, put out wonderfully and beautifully on the Mockingbird site. So look at that, too. But if you have $1.99 or $2.25 or even, I think I saw it on eBay or on uh, ABE for like uh, I think maybe maybe a dollar four a paperback copy of By Love Possessed. Get an old one because uh, they're not worth anything on the market. The only thing I would change about this, and this is a point that I want to make in relation to Christmas, is uh, the famous concluding section, Arthur Winter's uh, Walk, that uh, begins in the uh, late um, in the five thirties and concludes with his arrival at his mother's house in Brockton, and um, at the conclusion of the book, and this gives away nothing because it's simply a statement of, uh, you know, honey, I'm home. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing here, unless it's, but there's also everything here. Um, 
he arrives and uh, we hear what's going on in his inner mind because what uh, the great strength of the book is the inner uh, dialogues. You see, people today are terribly um, afraid to really have any alone time. There's a great deal of alone time that this author, together with, by the way, John Galsworthy, whom Cousins so admired, but he does the same thing. Galsworthy and Cousins are masters of getting inside their character's inner dialogue. Now today, but with, with the internet being what it is and with um, the iPhone and with the... Uh, the ear, earbuds and the constant listening to music all the time in every this sort of no this it's possible to lead a life with almost no stillness i'm not saying everybody does but it is possible to lead a life with only with almost no alone time with yourself input coming in from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep and uh, this is terrible because uh, there's no time to absorb and there's no time to really deal. And that uh, wonderful comedian, is his name Ernie Kay? Do I have that right? That comedian who was featured on Mockingbird who had that amazing interview on Conan about death. And he he wouldn't let his teenage daughters have cell phones or iPhones, he said, because he, he said, in his opinion, Ernie Kay... I, I think that's his name, and if I have it wrong, you can correct me. He realized that, that these people, his children, were having absolutely no time on their own, and this was driven by a fanatical kind of collective ego. Don't you love it? Uh, that was our Subaru being serviced. But, um, I mean, it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> the, where was I? Oh, yeah. Well, the so these inner dialogues are amazing. And this comedian says that he won't let his daughters have a, cell phones because they'll never have any time alone. And what's driving this? And he was the one that said this to Conan, who tried very, very persistently to change the subject. But the comedian said, well, you know, everybody's really afraid of this void out here. No one really wants to deal with the fact, you know, that ultimately it's about death. Ultimately, there's this huge void. There's the horror, you know, there's Conrad and all that. There's this, there's this, there's this quiet, waiting, Sartrean pus, you know. Know, this goo, this g glue, this terrible thing that is known as death, and it's waiting, and it's uh, will do anything, and our collective ego will establish all kinds of mechanisms and technologies and formats by which we can never, ever, ever deal with this thing. But it's coming as sure as uh, as sure as the turning of the earth, to quote Ethan Edwards in uh, The Searchers. This thing is coming at you as sure as the turning of the earth, and this is why Cousins is so amazing. And by the way, Galsworthy understands this also, but in a slightly more delicate way, you might say, because Cousins, um, uh, uh, each of uh, parts, uh, the three parts of By Love Possessed, the BLP oil spill, are entitled, and their references to poems and to Shakespeare, Drums Afar Off, the first chapter. These, all these characters in sort of middle-class American small town of the early 1950s hear drums afar off, in quotes, because it, it's coming but it's very muffled. And then part two, a noise of hunters heard. They, they can hear the hunters. They can hear, it's coming, and it's coming a little louder in part two of the book, which begins on page 258. And finally, part three, within the tent of Brutus. And that's a reference to the scenes at the end of Julius Caesar in which Brutus and Cassius uh, see death uh, in the uh, ghostly figure of, uh, sorry, Brutus in the ghostly figure of Julius Caesar. And we know what happens to Brutus's wife, which prefigures for cousins very, very grievously the fate of dear and uh, poor, fanatical um, brother loving and sustaining but f frightened of everything, Helen Detweiler within the tent of Brutus. And that doesn't even begin. Let me get you this. Part three doesn't even begin to page 481. Give me a break, but this is wonderful because this is why he said that on the Conan O'Brien show. It is coming and we will do anything to prevent it. And the whole power of this novel is of a people 
Uh, every single one is a fanatic, either possessed by love or um, uh, wanting to possess someone else or something else as an act of love that is not up to the desire. And it all falls by the wayside. And although Cousins does not end this on a religious note, although the key... The key, the curtain drops, the, 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 the anvil comes through the roof. You know, I was at a church in Charleston once that the, the roof had fallen in, and, and Buxtehude's church, the Marienkirche in, where is it? That's not Rostock, it's Lübeck. When, when the English bombers hit the church, the, the bell went right through the roof, and I still think it's there. It's in the narthex of the St. Mary's Church Lübeck, where Buxtehude played, as a reminder of the power and the fright and the devastation and the repulsion from the human project of war. And um, we finally come to a place where Arthur Winter has finally, even with all of his defense mechanisms, which are the highest and most refined and in some ways the most noble and unself-serving, he is also crushed by the bell that comes to the roof during the bombing raid of life and death. And so at the end, we have, uh, he arrives at his mother's house. With a start, he heard down the stairs a voice. From upstairs, he's saying, his Aunt Maud's calling in loud inquiry, Arthur, are you there? And then there's a little bit more of a writing. And finally, raised to call back to answer his Aunt Maud, Arthur Winner heard his own grave voice. He said, I'm here. All that I would change, this is PZ speaking, in this remarkable novel, and I want to underline the fact that whatever you may think, and we all have our favorite things, and this may be the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life, but I want to say unequivocally, this is my favorite piece of literature that I have ever read. And I'm looking, as I say this, at hundreds and hundreds of wonderful books that I have around me in all sorts of languages, all of which are more famous, many of which are far more famous, more distinguished and more loved and more appreciated than by love possessed with its oil spill. But I'm going to say that this is my personal favorite. It's the one I would if I were an Egyptian. Remember, my book has a great passage about the extraordinarily deft insight of ancient Egyptian religion into the human predicament. And uh, I would simply make this one change in the entire novel. Raised to call back, to answer his Aunt Maud, Arthur Winner heard his own grave voice. He said, I am. That would be my one change. Think about that when you read it. Arthur, are you there? He heard his own grave voice, period. He said, I am. I am. Well, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll have one more, um, someone who reads, uh, listens uh, with uh, enormous attentiveness. Actually, it's my friend Fred Rogers to these podcasts, whom I honor, whom I absolutely honor, just honor. But he encouraged me to do another Crab Monsters uh, one, he or a Journey one. He also likes the ones that we might call insane. And this is not insane. As you can hear, uh, my tone of voice implies it's not insane. But I will uh, conclude the podcasts for uh, Christmas, the this podcast for Christmas, with uh, the following um, uh, musical piece that, to me, sums up the absolute core of life. From the land of endless night come I, an alien from afar, Spewing forth upon you a pleasant sphere, so much like you, and yet so unalike. Am I the you before, the you you were when your world was new? 
or am I the you that you will be tomorrow? Through me you see your future or your past. I know not which. For I come from that spark of light so far in space, your mind the distance could not comprehend. It was once my home, and calls to me when I look up into the void. But it is not the burdened place your planet is that warms and cools you as the seasons go. Oh no. My mind recalls a seething cauldron flung among the stars and satellites and galaxies of boundless time. There, through evolution, I became the creature I am now. No heart or feelings show in me. Perhaps I'm better off than you, for I see things without emotion as they are. Some may envy me, but I pay a price to be from human feelings free. Perhaps in me, you see your destiny. From the land of endless night come I, an alien from afar, spewn forth upon your pleasant sphere, so much like you, and yet so unalike.